Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of the Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. I'm Tim Cronin. I'm John Simon. We've been talking about taking depositions. We're going to continue that conversation today. John, what's next up on our agenda? So another topic that comes up a lot is when to ask the ultimate question. For instance, if it's a truck accident and you're deposing the driver and your client was stopped at a red light and they ran into the back of them, in that situation, I think, give them an easy question. Do you think that this collision was in any way your fault? And you know the facts are that they rear-ended your client. Because that's, again, that's one of those questions that you really don't care what the answer is. Now, if it's an expert witness and you know beforehand, they're never, ever going to agree with you on the ultimate issue in the case, whether a product's defective or whether the doctor committed malpractice. I avoid it in those circumstances. But what about your own witness? In the situation, sometimes with your own witness, you get an objection where you ask your own witness the ultimate issue in the case, their opinion about whether there's negligence by a doctor. I mean, every medical defense lawyer does that in every single depot of their doctor client ever. Was this your fault? Do you believe you were negligent? And then I turn around and go, so just to be clear, you are being sued we are claiming you are negligent and asking for damages, and your opinion is that you aren't negligent. Do I have that right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We have a statute in Missouri, and if it hasn't changed, I believe it allows experts experts to opine on the ultimate issue yeah. in a civil case, not in a, in a criminal case. But we still draw objections at trial. I mean, well, especially on the issue of punitives, the objection is that that's state of mind and they can't give an opinion about the state of mind of someone else. And I've had judges go both ways on it, whether an expert's allowed to say conscious disregard for safety or not. So I think in any event, you want to ask the question, if you think you're going to get somewhere with it, I think you should consider asking the question in the deposition. Yeah. I mean, if you can tell that there's no way you're going to get anywhere with it, I don't do it. I think it's fair game to ask a a lay witness, uh, you know, somebody who's not associated with either the parties. Uh, maybe an employee of the company. Who would you blame for this incident? You get a bunch of objections. Do you think that was safe? Exactly. And I think it's a preliminary question that invites, what's your basis for your answer? And because everybody, most people seem to have an opinion coming in. Like, oh yeah, I think it was whoever's fault. Let's talk about your basis for it. Because that leads to a rich conversation sometimes of who have you talked to? What have you learned? You've seen some documents. There's a reason you think this is the case. Sometimes it's worthwhile. I think a rule of thumb, especially when you're questioning the defendant in a case, when they say no, their denial that they had anything to do with the accident or the surgery or whatever it is, if it just sounds silly and makes them look bad, you want to ask it. Yeah. Period. Yeah. Especially in cases where it's a little easier for the jury to figure out who's at fault, any kind of car accident, a truck accident. I mean, those are things that are fairly obvious, and I I never hesitate to ask the ultimate question in those types of cases in the deposition. This is probably a good time to mention that you got to go over your petition with your client. What I do, I don't go over the petition, but what I do is I make sure they have a general basic understanding of why they're suing, what our claims are, and what the defenses are. If they know that, it'll allow them to understand and respond to most any question that's asked on those issues. I don't go over all of it, but I show them the petition because I like them when they're asked, have you even seen the petition? I like them to say, yes, I have. Did you read it? 
And then they'll say the truth, which is that I looked over parts of it and I would focus them on, you know, here's what the defendant did wrong and here's the damages you're asking for. Because I think that's important that they know when they're asked, well, what are you here for? Why did you sue my client and what are you asking for? It only takes five minutes sometimes to go over that with the client. So that's what I try to do. I was in a depot a few months ago in a product case where the manufacturer third-partied in someone else and is trying to blame them. And the corporate rep of the manufacturer who I sued didn't know that, that their lawyers had third-partied in someone else. And I took like a seven-hour depot of this corporate rep. And then the third-party defendant lawyer asks like a couple questions and basically was like, I mean, what would you think about your company? It was a recalled product suing my client and trying to say it's their fault. And the corporate rep went, I would find that abhorrent to try to say this is anyone else's fault but wow. ours. And wow. I was like, that's the best thing that happened in the yeah. depot. Yeah, it's a good answer, whatever it is. Yeah, right. Tim, you mentioned seven hours, and I took a deposition last week that I think was a little longer than that. None of my depositions are 45 minutes for sure. I'd say most of them are somewhere between three, four, three to five hours yeah. probably. I mean, a treating doctor might be short. A right. car accident witness might be short. The one I took, it was about eight hours of questioning. It was an expert witness in an automotive product case. Just one of the things, you get tired. I mean, you really do. They're tired also. This isn't a sprint. You're in for the long haul. Be patient. Take some breaks. Keep thinking about things. But you really need to outlast the witness. Absolutely. Have either of you been called on the time deadline? like seven hours, you're done. That's right. It's a new rule in Missouri. When did that go into effect? I think about six, eight months ago. Maybe. Yeah. But I've been called on that. I was in an appointed case and I was deposing a prison guard and it was a deposition where a key document wasn't produced. And so we came back a second time and I'm asking questions and the defense attorney for the attorney general's office said, you're done. That's seven hours. <laughs> I thought that's not possible. So in, in case that ever happens, I didn't know that court reporters do this. Thank goodness they do. I said to the court reporter, do you keep tabs of when we're actually taking starting testimony, and starting and stopping? She goes, absolutely. If I think and it, it might be an issue, I write the start on my notepad. I'll write the time we started, the time we stopped each time. So I asked the court reporter, could you add the time up? And she goes, you're at five hours, not seven. Because well, I don't, don't know. You don't call the breaks. Is it seven hours of depot time or seven hours? It should be seven hours of depot time, right? That's what she It's a bigger do. issue in Illinois because theirs is three hours. Oh. For experts, it's three hours. You can go to the court and get some more time within reason. So oftentimes lawyers will say, look, I don't want to go to the court. If I can finish in the next 45 minutes, can we just agree? And I'll do the, you the same courtesy if you have a depot. The other thing too, whether it's a product case and it's design issues or industry standards or regulations, or whether it's a surgery or some internal medicine issue, you need to get industry rules, standards, rules in terms of what the doctor's supposed to do. What do you do with a differential diagnosis? And so all of these things, as you were saying earlier, Tim, listen and advance your case. And advancing your case means not just getting admissions from the witness on their particular part that they played in whatever the incident is, some more general broad rules, admissions on rules, admissions on the elements. I'll give you an example. Car company, corporate rep, expert witness. We have certain elements in a product liability case that we need to prove here in Missouri. The vehicle was manufactured, designed, sold by the defendant. The vehicle was being used in a manner reasonably anticipated. The accident itself was foreseeable by the defendant. All of those things I will run through real quick with every witness because they're, they're elements of my claim 
And when we start the trial, I want to have had six of the defendant's experts all admit that's not an issue. The accident was foreseeable. It was intersectional collision. So all of these things need to be in your outline, and you really just need to manage your time well, but work for those admissions. Depending on the expert, sometimes I'll say, what's your name? What are all your opinions? Just right off the bat to throw them off. Like, well, I mean, it depends on No, no. I'm here to find out. Tell me all your opinions. I'm going to write them down. Right, right. (laughs) We've been talking about being thorough and comprehensive. Ask meaningful questions. I mean, you don't want to spend half of your time on information that's evident on the CV or information that you already have. Say it's a witness who's testified hundreds of times, and there are literally 100 deposition transcripts out there covering everything from A to Z in that witness's background. You and don't need to waste your time. Right. Don't waste your time with that. CV, I usually, is this a current and up-to-date copy of your CV? And that might Anything be that needs to be on it? that isn't on it? No, and I don't waste my time on it. So another issue that comes up a lot in depositions, what do you do with a witness that is being evasive, just won't answer the question? Make them look ridiculous so they have no credibility about anything else that they're saying, especially if it's an expert and they've reviewed all the materials in the case. I'll go back and go, now hold on a minute. You read this deposition, this deposition, this deposition, this deposition. You looked at 400 photographs. You looked at all the defendant's document production. And you're here as an expert witness on this subject. And you know and you knew this is an important issue in this case that I just asked you about. And you're here telling me you don't know and can't comment on that question. And then close the box on him after that. So we're going to hear nothing from you about that issue and like expand it outwards. Tim, is that a parent voice I'm hearing? Yeah. It sounds like witness shaming. And, and, and voice, good, good <laughs> example of voice inflection, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah, good good practice. So, so let me give you some other examples that happen to me all the time. And I know how I handle them. I wanna ask you guys how you handle them. You got an expert witness and it was this happened to Depo last week. How many times have you testified in court? Oh, I don't know. Uh, How many depots have you given in the last two years? Oh, I I don't know. How much money have you or your firm made in doing litigation work in the last calendar year? Oh, I don't know. How do you approach that? What do you do? Well, I'll usually at least, okay. So you've been doing expert litigation consulting for 30 years, right? You don't know how many depots you've given, but it's so many that you can't remember how many it is. You know you get asked about your past testimony history In every single deposition, you know it coming in, right? Well, not everybody. Okay, you get asked it all the time, right? And you have no idea, even though you've been asked that question over and over again every single time that you give a deposition. There's Tim doing his witness shaming again. (laughs) Well, it's preposterous, and it's increasingly happening. Is it more than one? Less than a billion? Can we start there? Right, and then the number question, like, okay, so you have no idea if you've made $1 million from litigation consulting? Or $50 million. Yeah, that's that's the approach that I use. I will say, well, okay, so you're not able to tell me, and I won't use a crazy, crazy number, but a number that hurts a little bit. I'll say, so you're not able to tell me whether it was more or less than the 10, $10 million? And they're like, well, of course not. It's oh, so not $10 million. You know something. Right. You know a little bit more about it than I do. I take it, right? And the idea is I need you to tell me what you do know about it. What can you tell me about it? And that's kind of the approach that I will take. And you'll usually narrow it down. But if it's anybody that's testified at all nowadays, there are transcripts out there. You'll get it. And you're almost better getting them to deny it in the deposition. And then you can kind of spring it on them at trial. Or they say, like, I think it's about 30. And you have a depot from 10 years ago where 10 years ago they said they'd given 60. <laughs> like, 
let it go. That person's coming to trial. And then we should probably note that sometimes, and I don't know, helps you. Sometimes it makes them look ridiculous. If right. it's a corporate rep who, you know, you ask a serious, simple question and they don't know, you're speaking for the corporation. And sometimes I'll drive that in. So you're speaking as a corporate rep and your company does not know X. Is that what you're saying? And we and, won't hear it at trial. We right. won't hear anything about it at trial. Right. right. Here's another one that comes up quite a bit. This happens when you're taking the deposition of a corporate representative. Where you've and, delineated out multiple topics. Right. Generally and, that you they need to have somebody prepared on. Yes. And so that means that they have to have somebody from the company show up and give testimony about those specific topics. With all information in the in the custody of or available to the corporation. So what I hear all the time in those depositions, I'll ask a question of the witness. What is your name? Where have you worked? It's outside the scope. It's outside the scope. It's outside the scope. Number one, two questions. What does that mean exactly? And two, what's your response? How do you handle that? Well, the law is actually crystal clear in federal court, which Missouri's rule is fashioned after in most states that have corporate rep rules is fashioned after. They still have to answer the question because it's ridiculous. You would have a right to just notice up the person's depot in their personal capacity. So the lawyer has a right to object that it's outside the scope. And all that means is if they're right, it's not binding testimony. So I just say, well, look, you can have a continuing objection to outside the scope for all questions if you want, but they still have to answer the question and we can sort it out later whether it was in the scope of a topic or not, and meaning it's binding or not, but they still have to give an answer. Just to clarify, when you say binding, it's not binding on the corporation if it truly is outside the scope, but it's, it's binding on that witness. Yeah, right. As if they were just being personally right. deposed. So the bottom line is they still need to answer the question, correct? Yes. And the other thing, too, that makes sense to me that that would be the answer is you also have the right to depose that person as an individual. Right. So what do you do? I guess the solution, if somebody insists on not answering any questions outside the scope of the deposition notice, is you work out a date to go back and take the same witness's deposition in their individual capacity and ask background questions that weren't in the notice. I mean, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. No, and so that's basically the reasoning that federal courts have laid out in saying they still have to answer the question because you would have a right to just notice up their depot again. And that's not just inconvenient to the lawyers, it's tremendously inconvenient to the witness. In a few (laughs) uh, cases, I've seen a uh, corporate rep noticed with the same person noticed immediately thereafter. And that gives you the leverage. Like, okay, we can play this game or we can just end this deposition and I'll ask it again in two hours when we're done. I think that's exactly the right approach. Answer the question and figure it out later with the judge. Some other things. We talked about this a little bit earlier on the last episode, nailing down undisputed facts in the case, eliminating issues. For instance, in a case, comparative fault, I will ask the defendant, ask the corporate representative, Do you believe my client was at all at fault in causing this crash? Do you believe in a med mal case? I mean, certainly my clients weren't at all at fault for anything that happened during the surgery or for the prescribing of the medication or whatever. It's really a great opportunity. And you do this with defendants. You do this with experts. You do this with a corporate representative. Eliminate issues. Nail down facts in the case. And another thing along the same lines, establish the duty of care. For instance, if you have a case where you're alleging that the physician didn't take a proper history, and had they done so and taken a proper history, the treatment would have been altered or different, or they didn't forward an x-ray to someone else, or they didn't forward test results to your client, whatever the issue is, 
it's not even a suggestion. I think it's pretty much standard. I think you need to do it. You need to ask a should question. Yeah, ask should questions. Should questions, a good way to put it. Should a comprehensive history been taken? Should the patient be given a copy or be alerted as to an abnormal test result? And then follow up with that. If that's not done, is that below the standard of care? Here's what I do, because then they don't want to say that, right? Something I often do with defendant doctors or defense experts in med mal cases is early on, I will read the definition of standard of care and say, so if I use that term, you know, we're both going to mean that definition, right? And then I say, and if I ask you if something should be done or should not be done, I'm asking you every time what falls within the standard of care, whether something is required by the standard of care. And then by the time I get to the should questions, they forget that they're saying whether something breaches the standard of care. That's a great suggestion. And it just makes so much sense. It's as Rick Friedman has laid out in his books, Rules of the Road, you're arguing about what somebody did or didn't do. First thing you need to do is establish what the rules are, what should have been done. You have to have a line. I think if you're trying an amorphous, loose, like whether something should or shouldn't have happened, you need a clear line that all that's left is proving whether they stepped over it. So if you can do a lot of things to eliminate issues, to nail down facts, now you turned a trial from a 12-day trial maybe into a six-day trial or a four-day trial. I mean, I've had some judges say to me, look, the jury's not listening anymore after two, three days. <laughs> they're, they're, they're done. They've, they've made up their mind about what they think happened. You know, there's another reason to shorten the trial is your own time. Your own time is valuable. You have other things to do back at the office. I can think of a couple examples in medical malpractice cases. One was a case Tim and I tried a few years ago, and another one more recently. Just to give you an example of what we're talking about when we say establish the standard of care, establish duty, one was a six-year-old girl who went to the emergency room repeatedly, I think three times, and the last two times there was blood in her stool, and each of those times they sent her back home. And in that case, we narrowed it down so that the issue was, should she have been sent home? And in that case, I think, was it one of the experts, or maybe it was even the defendant doctor who had written a chapter in a textbook? It was whether there was lower gastrointestinal bleeding. Right, blood in the stool. And so that was a single issue. If there was blood in the lower gastrointestinal system, they pretty much admitted that you have to be admitted to the hospital, and not doing so was below the standard of care. So all that was set up in the depositions. It was set up in the depositions of the defendant doctor. It was set up in the, in the depositions of the defense experts. And so we were able to present that case, at least on liability, as a single issue. Was there blood in the stool, period? And so it's such a great tool to just eliminate issues, build your case, get admissions, go through the elements of what you need to prove in your case, make sure they're on your outline, and make sure you check them off, make sure you cover them. Another issue, and this is a really helpful tip, you know, you send out your request for admission asking for whatever, medical records or prior incidents or whatever it is you're asking for, and what do you get? I can see the pleading now, overly broad, burdensome, and so on and so forth, not relevant. So what I do before I call that objection up, I hold off calling up that objection, provided you have enough information to actually take the deposition of a corporate representative, but I will add that into one of the uh, topics in the corporate rep deposition. So we get an, a witness and I'll ask, okay, who keeps these records? Whatever it is you're asking about, how are they kept? Are they on the computer? How do you access them? So you push a button or two buttons and you can recall all of these documents. 
and they're online and they're accessible and they're available. And who's in charge of that and who does it? And how long does that take? And does it require you to go manually from like searching in car trunks or trucks or whatever? And so what you do is you establish, you sort of undo or explode their objections during the deposition so that then later when you go to argue your motion to compel, you're not just arguing in a vacuum. You're there saying, we want this, and they're saying, well, it's oppressive, it's burdensome. You can say, well, judge, no, it's not. And here's the evidence that we have. One of the things at a deposition you want to do when it's appropriate is to undermine discovery objections, specifically the overly broad and burdensome. Yep, definitely. You can call an IT person as an early deposition and, and get a lot of that stuff. But I mean, you can take a custodian depot. Yeah, custodian records. How do you store your records? You know, sometimes it is burdensome. A couple of years ago, I took a deposition involving a, a jail, a large municipal jail where the records are all paper. They're a big mess. It seems to me that anyone asserting that objection should be ready to prove it. It should be their burden. And that's what I've argued And when arguing depositions, because a lot of attorneys show up and they just wave their hands. They go, this is really burdensome harassing. How would I know that? You're just saying that to the judge. That's just your assertion. Where's your evidence? But John, you're going even further. You're saying, I'm going to go get evidence to prove my case that it's not burdensome. The other thing too, it's not just the ease of getting the documents, but it's also the existence of documents. I get a lot of, we don't have these. We can't find them. We look, and they're not there. There are none. I mean, that happened to us in a product case a few years ago. Remember when you and Johnny ended up going to Japan to take another corporate rep depot on their dime? Because for two years in the case, they told us there was no testing documents. They never tested the particular issue. And then we later found out through some other witness or something at the end of discovery, they exactly tested it and it showed it failed in exactly the way we were saying. Yeah, and we got that by in corporate rep depots, you ask, okay, when this vehicle is tested, what documents are created? And I go through the process. Is there a document that's prepared to initiate the test? Is there a document that documents the results of the test? Where is it kept? Who gets copies of it? What departments are they in? Who's the custodian? How long are they kept? I think one of the things you need to cover is depending on the category of document, a lot of companies have different retention policies depending on what it is. If it's a design document, they probably keep it forever. Number one, you want to ask, do they actually keep track of them? Do you have policies and procedures about keeping track of other similar instances? I say OSI's other similar instances. And if they do, then they keep them. And guess what? If they don't, then they sure can't come into court and say this is the first time this has happened. They don't have the foundation to say that. If they don't go out of their way to find out whether or not that the same thing happened before with their product, whatever the failure is, if they don't go out of their way to find those, document them, and keep them, then they really don't have a foundation to say how many times this has happened before. So either way, I think you want to cover that in the deposition. Again, the bottom line is you want to undermine their discovery objections, and you want to make sure that what they're telling you, it's a way to reaffirm whether or not they're being upfront with you in their discovery answers. You know, we talked about reading the witness, and I think it's worthwhile to just remind yourself to go in upbeat into depositions. Just go in upbeat, shake hands, meet the people, get some semblance, even if you've never met them before, get some sort of working relationship going with the lawyers in the room, show them you're a human being, and I think it really pays off. You know, earlier we talked about listening to the witness, paying attention to the witness. Lawyers have drastically different habits or practices about note-taking during depositions. I generally take almost no notes. I mean, there's a transcript of what's being said, except 
if there's something the witness says that I know I want to follow up on later, I'll like write it on a post-it note or I'll just have like bullet points I'm writing on a notepad. But other than that, I, you know, I know some lawyers just constantly are taking notes about everything that's being said during the deposition. I don't do that. I think it distracts me from being able to pay full attention to the witness. John and Eric, what do you guys do? I agree. I think when I do take notes, it's something that the witness says that I want to follow up on. And I really try not to take the note immediately reacting to what's being said. I let a little time pass. I don't want to really telegraph to my opponent that I heard something that's enough of an interest that I'm going to go ahead and write it down. That goes the other way, too. When your witness is being deposed, your client or your expert, if there's something that comes out that's just smacking you right in the head, that's something terrible, I mean, if you got any kind of an attorney on the other side of the case, they're going to know when they're hitting a nerve. But I don't react, not, not don't try to react, don't react to anything. Same thing goes for trial. Somebody's on the stand that says something that's not what you want to hear. You might be surprised by it. You don't want the jury, oh, wow, not only was that good, but it's really good. This guy's writing all kinds don't of stuff. Don't lean down. over to your co-counsel right. and start furiously <laughs> looking concerned and talking. And whispering in the ear <laughs> yeah. and all of this. So same thing happens, same thing for a deposition. The best way for me personally to evaluate the skill level of my opponent or any attorney for that matter is to read carefully a lengthy, in-depth deposition that an attorney has taken. What an absolute gift. When you get a deposition that somebody has taken of your, of any witness, but your witness, your expert, your client, read it and study it because it's going to give you a roadmap as to what they're thinking. When you read an attorney's deposition, any deposition, what that does is it, it should give you a roadmap as to the work product, the mindset, the thought process of the attorney taking the deposition. I read a lot of depositions that I didn't attend and didn't take when we're getting ready for trial. And I'll, I'll see a portion of the deposition where the witnesses is, for instance, looking at photographs and pointing out things on the photograph, whether it's the scene or whether it's a piece of equipment. And you don't know which photo it is. I don't know what photo it is. I don't know where they're pointing on the photo. Yeah. It's like, yeah, right there. Yeah, here. Make sure that you document the record in any deposition about what document or object or photograph you're looking at and more specifically, where on the photograph. If you can have the witness make a mark on it, that's the, probably the best way to do it. And so I asked you to identify if you saw this and you are making a red mark on the photograph, that red mark means blah, 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 like meticulously making sure anything that's physically happening is explained in the transcript. So the last two things that I wanted to bring up about taking a deposition, one is waiving signature. Everybody knows if you've taken a deposition, you know what that means. But I guess for some of us that haven't taken a deposition, Tim, what, what does that mean and how do you handle it? So the witness either has to read the transcript and sign to confirm that there's no change, like they didn't think the court reporter took anything down wrong, or make specific changes and explain the reason and then sign that. And that makes the transcript final, that that's their under oath testimony, or every witness has the right to wave signature, which just means trusting the court reporter took everything down correctly. And how do you handle that with your, say, your client? Do you have them read it or do you wave signature or do you do it differently depending on the circumstance? I do it differently depending on the circumstance. My client, you know, if it's not super technical testimony, I'll usually just have them wave signature. Experts, I more often will have them read and review, especially if they're talking about very technical terms. And I want to make sure that everything was taken down correctly. Eric, what about you? I, I would agree with if, if you have a witness is saying something that is just not going to be controversial, 
is usually not my client, then and I might explain you have a right to waive your signature. I offer this, though. I think a lot of attorneys explain the waiver process incorrectly, and they tell, like, if they're talking to my client, you have a right to waive, or usually they'll let you explain to your own client, but they can add testimony. They can change things, but the original testimony sticks. It doesn't go away. Right. Both are admissible. They can add, you know, things in, in the form that the court reporter gives. Yeah. In recent years, for my clients, I'll always not waive. And the reason is because they find something, if they think of something, and I'll encourage them to read their deposition. If they find nothing, then even if they don't respond to the court reporter's request, then it's deemed waived right. at trial. So you, you, by saying we will read, you also have the option of still waiving. Yeah, that's a good point. I tend to have, unless it's technical, I tend to have my client waive signature, and I'll tell you why. Because when they do, if they're going to review it and sign it, I'm not always sure they actually reviewed it, and they're always going to say something inconsistent at trial than what they said in the deposition. And so when that happens, instead of them saying, well, you know, I took that deposition a year and a half ago or 12 months ago, it was 180 pages. I must have misspoke. I must have misspoke. You know, then the other attorney gets to say, and Mr. Simon mailed it to you, and you had it at the house, and you took your time, and you reviewed it. And here's the other thing. You sat through the deposition. You heard what was said. If something really was fundamental to your case and it was incorrect or, or not stated completely, you're going to fix that on cross with your own witness, with your own client or witness. So the last point in this episode is easy. It's simple. And if you get nothing else from this entire episode other than this point, I think it was worth listening. And this is something that I've been preaching to the lawyers here for years. When a depot is completed, and right after it's completed, and I mean right after in an hour or two, do a fairly detailed memo about your thoughts and impressions of the deposition, of what happened at the deposition. And you're going to say, well, we get a transcript. Why would I do that? It's because there is never a time that you're going to be more familiar with that witness and the issues that that witness raised than at the conclusion of the deposition. It's getting down your thoughts at that time about what the witness said. If the witness says something that's bad for you, what were you thinking about how you're going to attack that? How are you going to undermine that? What other discovery do you need to do? So I, I make myself that day. I will do it that day. And it's something that might take you 30 minutes. It might take you 15 minutes. And I'm not talking about, you know, a 50-page memo, but two, three, four, five pages just to get down your thought process while it's fresh. It sounds like a great idea. I'm glad I do it when I do it. I should always do it. It will take 30 minutes immediately after the deposition. And again, I'm thinking about saving time so you can do other things. If you wait for four weeks or three months, it will take longer than 30 minutes and you'll miss a bunch of it. Yeah. And not only using it at trial, but most of the cases that we have around here, we take 10, 20, 30 depositions in the case. And you may take two or three depots in a week in that case and then put it down for four months or five months or six months. And then when the next deposition comes up, it's really nice to pull up all the memos that you did for the 10 witnesses that already been deposed. And you spend literally 30 minutes reading them through. And it really gets you back up to speed on what's going on in the case. I agreed. Well, that ends this episode on taking depositions. We hope you enjoyed it. It's part of a continuing series of episodes on depositions. This has been another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Beef. I'm John Simon. I'm Tim Cronin. See you next time. The Jury Is Out is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. 
Share your comments with John and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. And if you want a lively look at life and law from a female attorney's point of view, check out our Heels in the Courtroom podcast. And subscribe today, because the best lawyers never stop learning.